Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When Diplomacy Fails presents Britain Goes to War An in-depth examination of the British Empire from the closing stages of the Victorian era to the opening phases of the First World War and beyond. Section 2 Background Part A The Golden Age Chapter 2 When Queen Victoria sent her telegraph on the 22nd of June 1897, just before she stepped outside Buckingham Palace and began the procession of her Diamond Jubilee along the streets of London, she did so in the knowledge that this strange new method of communication would bring this message across her world. The technology of the age had dramatically shrank the world that the Victorians lived in, to the extent that, where once travelling to India took as much as four months and was a journey from which one may never return, now it took just shy of 20 days, and even less if the conditions were more favourable. The steamship had greatly reduced the time spent at sea, and the idea of emigration, business travel and even holidaying seemed like a more normal concept than it had 50 years before. The means of communicating with the far-flung possessions of the Empire in 1897 involved the sending of mail or telegraph, and both had become another monopoly of the British Empire by that time. Ever since the very first transatlantic cable had enabled the sending of telegraphs between Canada and Britain in 1857, Britons had marvelled at the new technology in the time it shaved off communications with its far-flung empire. Within a decade, a cable connected India to Britain, and by 1872 Australia was connected. South Africa was connected over land and under the sea. Mathematical theorists of the time had a field day in the process as inventors developed the strongest and most durable cables which wouldn't require replacement and could be relied upon to stay in place. By 1897 the so-called All Red Line was almost completed, and by 1902 its proud administrators would be able to claim that they had ensured British communications across the world, in a system that was secure from attack or bad weather. British entrepreneurs had founded the companies that had originally developed the cables, and now they possessed the ships that could uproot or lay down more of these cables. 
The expertise, experience and control over the communication systems that bound the Empire together was such that Britain controlled 80% of this network by the time Victoria sent her telegraph. The system was not without its flaws though and it had begun to cost a bomb. Operating costs for the telegraph lines cost the colonial office £8,000, having risen £800 every year since 1870. Some sections of cable were perceived to be very vulnerable and in need of backups because of where they ran through. Often it was not possible to run a line direct from one city to another in a far-off land. The line from London to Calcutta, for example, ran through Germany to Russia to Iran and then to its destination. New imperialists viewed the system as one that symbolised the British progress and constantly lobbied for its expansion and improvement, with the dream of one day controlling all cabling across the world. Fiji, British Honduras, Tobago, the Falklands, Turk Islands and New Guinea were the only territories inhabited by subjects of Britain that did not warrant a cable, but a growing desire to link them to the mainframe was in place. The process was such that once Victoria had sent her telegraph on the morning of the 22nd of June 1897, despite its vulnerabilities and problems, she was able to receive confirmation that evening that her messages had been received, and even in the very few places where a runner had delivered the message, originally received from somewhere else, the replacement system in place more than made up for the lag. Victoria, if she so wished, could now have a conversation with any one of her administrators in any one of her dominions, colonies, or protectorates, in record time. And it was perhaps just as well that she could, for while her rivals may have looked jealously at all she could now do with the power of communication, Britain had come to appreciate that it needed this system to move its very chess pieces across the huge board. This did not just refer to military vessels, it mainly referred to the fact that, at any one moment in 1897, 200,000 seamen of British stock were at sea, or that over half of all merchant shipping was of British origin. Britain had launched a thousand new ships since 1896 had ended, reflecting how seriously her manufacturers viewed seed power. British tonnage far outstripped that of any other power. Were a survey of 1,000 tonnes passing through the Suez Canal to be taken, for example, one would find 700 of these tonnes belonging to the British. The British had not only the monopoly, they had the experience on how to create and maintain and grow that monopoly, more so than any other power in the world. But shipping lines, whatever their origin, relied on the international system that the British had created. The three shipping companies that could claim to be the largest in the world relied on the network of coaling stations and security that the British had established, to say nothing of the valuable contracts that they had set up. In every imperial port, be it in Hudson Bay or in the tiny Fanning Island, London's shipping lines were the main event, and the spectacle of one of these ships unloading or even arriving with their wares was a great sight which drew in small crowds almost without fail. Journeys which once meant a yearly absence from society now formed an integral aspect of commercial ventures. The Suez Canal was a great example of how the journey around the empire had changed. Indeed, it was viewed as the Victorian era's greatest engineering marvels. Nonetheless, it was also viewed as a serious inconvenience by many admirals who had to accommodate the narrow canal by taking apart their cannons and screeching awkwardly past its shallow intervals. 
Because the British didn't actually own a majority stake in the Suez Canal Company and the French did, improvements were slow in coming. This Anglo-French rivalry came despite the fact that the British had occupied Egypt in 1881 for the very purpose of safeguarding their interests in the canal. Travelling east to India was something a British family now did, a part of the job, something to be expected and not necessarily loathed. Some agents of British India on the way there could expect to meet Anglo-Egyptians coming from the other direction once they reached the end of the canal. They would have respectfully nodded at one another, these two distinct pillars of a huge empire that transported its cargo over incredible distances at breakneck speed. The aristocratic flavour of the era seeped into travel with a vengeance. Advertisements for travel to Canada, Australia or India billed the journey as one primarily of pleasure, with engines so quiet and smooth as to make it seem like the traveller wasn't moving at all. The rooms themselves, which would house the luxurious traveller for the duration, noted their abundance of space, their fresh air and the presence of electricity, which would enable one to turn on and off their electric light at their own pleasure. First-class dining arrangements saw oriental, bearded waiters listen intently to the overdressed and stuffy upper classes as high waves battered the vessel and harsh winds threatened to lift it off the sea. It was a strange contrast, even at sea some thousands of miles from home, the attempts of the Britons to tame the very waves themselves and substitute them for leisure and comfort manifested themselves. The network of ships required feeding, and the wellspring of coal from the mines of Britain was transplanted from home to its many coaling stations across the world. On many occasions did the British opt to annex an island purely for its strategic location along a route, such as to India, where refueling would become necessary or desirable. Nobody wanted to be stuck on a steamship devoid of coal in the middle of the Pacific. So, unheard clusters of islands, some smaller than a London suburb, had the Union Jack raised upon them in the name of the interest of the steamship. Yet it wasn't just Britons that used these resources. Once established, these coaling stations could be used by foreign merchant navies also, while the communications networks of cables could be tapped into for a small fee too. Ports meant everything to the maritime-obsessed British. They could be used as the key towards gaining a better hold on the region, like Mombasa in Central Africa or Mozambique in the south, just as much as India's coasts have been occupied with British boats and docks before its company men had trudged inland. Britons were surprisingly active in other categories of naval activity too. The erection of lighthouses, considered vital for preventing disaster, were building projects forced upon states like the Ottomans, Portuguese and Spanish. One of the key lobby groups in the Italian parliament was one which argued for the better provision of lighthouses along its coast to tempt more British traffic in. Some of the most remote lighthouses in the world were even staffed by British imperial agents, such as one on Daedalus Reef in the northern Red Sea. These acts, seemingly small and meaningless, ensured a well-oiled system of transport and a reliable return on goods purchased and sold. Protection of sea lanes, their coaling stations, and the telegraph lines became defence issues as important as the remote Russian military threat to India, and all threats had to be taken seriously despite the reality that Britain had not only outstripped foreign capabilities, but that these foreign powers depended on the maintenance of what Britain had now set up. 
To some, like elderly Victorians that had borne witness to the invention of the period and the intense communication revolutions therein, the fact that a letter now took 38 days to reach Sydney or 17 to reach India was like something out of a fantasy. Ottawa, Canada's federal capital, could now be contacted in eight days. Relatives once forgotten or relegated to history could now be contacted and communicated with in true regularity. Family members for £50 could return from India to London in under three weeks. The shock must have been palpable, like talking to your granny about Facebook or trying to explain how you just sent a photo of yourself to your friend in the space of a second or two. The technology of the era was filtering down to the average Victorian in Britain and bringing immense change to their world, and communication was far from the only change. The abundance of wealth at the time brought with it a new spending power and a new class, the middle class. These professionals, administrators, civil servants, lower statesmen and businessmen could now take advantage of their new wealth and opportunities by purchasing items in the various coastal cities. Shopping became a pastime for both men and women, who now viewed surprising luxuries as essentials, such as soap, sweets and biscuits. The industrial magnate had thus been replaced by the commercial entrepreneur, and the individual who could invent the next seemingly unnecessary item that Britons couldn't live without would make a fortune if his idea caught on. The availability of goods and the wealth that these people now enjoyed brought with it a recognisable feature of our time. Advertising with a vengeance. Posters depicting the product and an individual enjoying its benefits was one of the most common ways of inducing people to buy the new item. But other more surprising methods of advertising also existed. Because consumerism was in its infancy and was not yet understood, advertising laws were absent also, and this led to a mass production of images of the royal family, who were amusingly depicted enjoying biscuits, appreciating soap and admiring new articles of clothing. All depictions were tasteful, of course, and even some sought to inject a sense of patriotism into the ad by depicting Britain's soldiery at last enjoying a good wash with pears soap or sitting down for a certain brand of tea after a long march. Marketing and shopping, byproducts of the network of consumerism Victorian empire builders had set in motion, were becoming staple aspects of Victorian Britain in their own right. As with communication, naval power and prestige, the British did these better than everyone else too. It wasn't all soap and sweets though. Much like its previous American empire which had been built on the backs of slaves, Britain's second drive towards empire was built on the backs of those less fortunate. While they weren't slaves this time round, the conditions of the London dock worker still left a great deal to be desired. Despite the fact that he pulled in the goods and put Britain's empire on the map, literally, he was not entitled to purchase these goods with his wage since it wasn't even high enough to properly feed his family. Till recently, he was barely entitled to vote at all, and in some cases he still wasn't. At least his work was still required though, the Industrial Revolution had supplanted the agricultural worker and forced 5 million Britons to emigrate by 1850. 3 million went to America and the remainder to the colonies, shoring up their sense of emotional attachment to the motherland, though they had been virtually ejected from it. Migrating across the lengths of their empire was made easier in the final years of the Victorian era, but that didn't prevent these millions of Britons from doing so in its earliest phases. 
perhaps most infamously for myself, the horrendous experience of the Irish in the great potato famines of the late 1840s saw their diaspora spread roots across the world, from the United States to Australia and South Africa to India in search of a new life. But British citizens had been fleeing their homeland in search of a better opportunity for years before the Irish had felt so compelled to do so on pain of death. Clive Phillips Wally, author and poet in the mid-19th century, was among many artists who captured the phenomena of British emigration, a fact of life that many Victorians found both exciting and fascinating. Wally himself would decide to settle in British Columbia with his wife and four children in 1890, and the verses he wrote along the journey vividly depict the experience endured by so many others at the time. He wrote, How could you go, while spring with cuckoo calls, with all the music in which woodbirds woo, with hymning larks and hedgerow madrigals, girdish with sunshine sweet with cuzbats coo, bade you to dream, how did you dare to do? Nay, rather, could you stay? Through warm red loam, round the sea rover's path, a wild salt scent, blown over seas, pierced through the apple bloom. The dove's soft voice with ocean's call was meant. You could not stay, you could not be content. Some 200,000 Britons left their homes each year in the 1890s and 80s, mostly because they lacked food, land or a genuine belief in their future at home. The idea of venturing abroad to new lands is a fascinating topic, and it is very much relevant to this day for anyone that is living through the recession in Ireland, and saw many other of their friends and relatives relocate to Australia, Canada or elsewhere. In this time period in particular, the United States was the first destination many chose to go. They did so out of the belief that it provided a new opportunity for a better start. Millions flooded into the coastal cities of America's eastern seaboard, and not just from Britain. They would then flood further inland. Their story of immigration would constitute an entire podcast alone. But suffice to say their descendants largely remembered their ancestral past particularly in the case of the Irish-Americans, who formed a considerable political lobby well into the 20th century. The administrators of the new imperialism that Lord Salisbury's Conservative and Unionist government of 1895 epitomised were perhaps a bit disappointed that their subjects had not taken to the idea of making a life for themselves in the more challenging regions of the empire like the frontiers of Canada, Australia or New Zealand, or that they had even left at all since moving to a foreign country altogether flew in the face of the idea that Britain was the best nation on earth. Apparently, to these ungrateful folks, it wasn't great enough. It is worth dwelling on the culture and focus that surrounded those that emigrated. Like the lives of abject poor souls who were only beginning to be understood and appreciated as a fact of life in the 1880s, or the emergence of the politicised working class after that, How Britons reacted and saw their countrymen abroad can be deduced from the numerous paintings that depicted their exits. Surprisingly, much like Clive Phillips Wally's poem suggests, they were looked upon with pity and understanding by the artists that painted stills from their experience, as well as those people that viewed these paintings after the event. In the painting, The Emigrant's Departure, by Paul Falconer Poole, a family is shown dividing as it leaves the house. The grandfather bids farewell to his grandchildren, 
most likely for the last time, while the very young children embrace one another, unsure of what was to come or even able to grasp why they had to leave it all. The Emigrant Ship, another painting by C.J. Staniland, depicts a dock scene containing some of the best and worst aspects of Britain departing for a new life. A distraught old woman sits deflated on a step. A young couple kiss one another goodbye, and in the background a young man swings himself onto the deck of a ship already piled high with men his age, destined for a new life somewhere far away. Finally, The Last of England, a painting by Ford Maddox Brown, is more sombre. A young, destitute couple dominate the painting. They sit close together on a boat already visibly packed close to the brim with other souls destined for new opportunities. But their faces aren't hopeful. They're pained. The woman bears an anxious expression, as behind the crossing of her arms peeks out the hand of a small child, the life of whom depends on this decision. The man's face is more resentful. He stares directly at you as if challenging you for forcing him to make this choice. Significantly, both of their backs to the shore, representing England and reflecting the fact that their new direction in life was made for them by the failure of that country to provide for them. As concerned as that couple may have been for their future, the prospects of those that travelled abroad were generally good. In 1900, it cost roughly £3 for a ticket to Canada from London a little over £320 in today's money, but not just anyone could go. Long gone were the days that those in debt, convicts or runaways could simply jump on a ship to the other side of the world. Now an immigration office officially financed by the government and sponsored by various charities that made safeguarding human cargo their mission ensured fair provision of information about the journey ahead and their prospects on arrival. London immigrant agents picked who they wished out of a series of applicants, and no promises were made that they would find fortunes once they left. Many actually returned home after reaching their destination and living there for a number of years. To many, Britain was home, even as a second-generation Canadian or Australian living on his grandfather's land. British standards were still accepted as paramount in the Dominions, British goods were the best, British-born men made the best administrators and governors, and the British aristocracy was the true elite class of the day. No rules were placed on these emigrants or their descendants. They could return home, so long as they could afford the voyage and so long as they left no suspicious past behind them. The point was this experience was not felt really by any other nation. No European could claim to have a diaspora that spoke their own language, was loyal to the motherland, or that contained burgeoning opportunities for reinvention and success. The realities of the time, of course, prevented many fortunes being made, and some arrived to find that the paradise they had been sold consisted of an even harder life than back home. But still, the White Dominions was a justifiably proud British achievement in the late Victorian statesman's estimation. From it he could draw and to it he could go. It is also worth remembering that the British weren't the only peoples to move. Their other subjects, most notably from India, experienced a mass emigration from their own country, as British officials, representing bees, pollinated their empire with Indian labour and workers, spreading the flowers of racial diversity through it. So massive was the transportation of Indian labour that it soon became a critical pillar of the empire's inner structure. 
South Africa, Canada, the Sugar and Spice Islands, Northern Australia, Fiji and countless other areas were populated by Indian workers who, driven there on the promise of good wage, soon settled down and attempted to integrate into their new home. It wasn't an easy integration. The legacy of slavery had created a mostly black and white divide in the empire in some areas, most infamously in South Africa, and even the black native Africans clashed at times with immigrating Indians, who they viewed as attempting to steal their livelihoods. In some areas, like Australia's more alien regions, the idea of a European labouring in the harsh climate was thought repulsive, degrading and impossible, and only Indians were thought capable of working in it. This was far from disproved of by London. The whole energy of the old and new imperialism demanded a cross-pollination of subjects from across its varied lands, with the idea being that the more loyal the subject was, the more loyal his new homeland would be. One is reminded of how important Sikhs became to the British military machine, but that is just one example. Irish priests and schoolmasters spread out across the empire. Australian jockeys could be found in India. Chinese policemen could be seen in Egypt if one looked hard enough. It didn't need to be justified or explained, but the more that a mixing of peoples occurred, the more flavour it was viewed to add to the empire, the more exotic its quality and desirable its culture. One could also depend, then, on acquiring goods from all areas of the empire, wherever one was. Indian cuisine began to appear in Canada, at the same time as more exotic kangaroo and primate meats were being sold in London markets. Cosmopolitanism wasn't necessarily the best way to describe it, since those subjects that attempted to mix with whatever peoples that were already there didn't always receive a welcoming reception. But London by no means attempted to hide the fact that its varied subjects were putting down roots in the four corners of its world. What other empire, after all, on earth could boast of such diversity? Diversity was visible in another migration within the empire, this one more forced. The act of moving one favoured crop or plant from one region and planting it all over another. This was most clearly seen in rubber, eucalyptus, pineapples, teas, bananas, sugars, potatoes, rice, blackberry bushes and even weeping willows, which were uprooted and replanted all across the empire. Such actions brought potatoes to Nepal, where they became the favourite diet of the Sherpas living there. It brought rice to British Guyana, with similar results. It was in many ways an experiment to utilise the suitable conditions of one region and make the crop more readily available there. Thus Australia received pears, corn, apples, oranges, wheat, beans, English grass and cinnamon, and other places like Malaysia and Ceylon became renowned rubber plantation warehouses. And where would the empire be without its livestock? Sheep in their millions, to the point that by 1897 there were two and a half sheep for every human being in New Zealand, not to mention one and a half cows and half a horse, were transported to New Zealand. The British changed the entire makeup of some regions, introducing sheep to the Falklands, the farming of livestock in general to Fiji, bringing camels to Canada and Australia. Such behaviour transformed the lives of millions of people for the better, as well as redefining how they actually worked and provided for their families. But the British made some really huge mistakes in this regard too. In Australia, for example, the introduction of the rabbit became a scourge, and while not sounding as bad as the toad catastrophe in Bermuda or the mongoose disaster in the Caribbean, they still ate all the crops, ruined the natural balance of the countryside, and simply would not stop breeding. 
ideas to prevent their spread with some form of disease never caught on, but the British didn't learn from such a problem. In fact, their own propensity for spreading diseases across their empire led to outbreaks of smallpox, sleeping sickness, cancer, dysentery, syphilis and tuberculosis in places that had never seen anything like these terrors. In scenes reminiscent of South America's bloody holocaust in the wake of the European arrival there in the late 16th, early 17th centuries, natives died by the hundreds of thousands, while medicine was in its infancy and even basic medical understanding was above the knowledge of too many an imperial agent had to claim a new piece of land and a new people for his queen. Yet while agents of the queen operated abroad with relative impunity, the average subject of the imperial capital remained no better off. The diverse populations that littered the empire, the policies for spreading livestock, flora and fauna, and the monies that came from it were of no interest to the common man in the street if he could not provide for his family. The oft-forgotten fact of the 19th century British Empire was that a large segment of the population, at least one-third, remained below the desperate poverty line, and that for at least 60% of the people living in Britain and Ireland, the fear of starvation and ejection from one's dwellings was a regular one. On the day of the Diamond Jubilee, this forgotten population could certainly take pride in the unfathomable reach of their empire, and many would surely have had brothers, fathers, uncles, etc., serving somewhere overseas or closer to home within its towering apparatus. Yet were any true reformer to examine the pomp of the ceremony up close on the 22nd of June 1897, as victorious swanned by in resplendent grace and opulence, they would have been struck by the immense cost of it all, in excess of one million pounds to organise and orchestrate the whole day. They would surely have questioned, then, could such funds not have been spent elsewhere? When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. 
Only at Sleep Number Stores or SleepNumber.com. Fortunately for the government of Lord Salisbury at the time, the observations of this theoretical reformer were either quiet or not made at all. Socialism remained a dirty, misunderstood word. For the few that dared to dream that their world could be better, when they left the street sides at the end of the 22nd of June and returned to their working lives, complete with the old concerns of money, their family's well-being and the availability of food still in place, real progress would have to be waited for until at least the next election, when a glimmer of hope in the form of the Labour Party and thus genuine representation of the working and poorer classes became a reality. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.